is the Trivium Dad Podcast. My name is Nick, and welcome. Dearest listeners, I'm here to ask for your support, not your financial support. It would be great if you could donate. It would help support the Trivium Dad podcast and Upward Enrichment Service. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, then leave a review because it will help other people find the show. And two, tell a friend about the show. Or better yet, tell a whole bunch of friends. Thank you. This program may contain strong languages and topics that might not be suitable for all listeners. Welcome to the Trivium Dad Podcast. My name is Nicholas Jones, and I'm excited to have on the call today, Dr. Jonathan Santos, who is a professor of the Department of Psychology at the University of Nebraska. He earned a PhD in psychology from Concordia University. Dr. Santos' dissertation was titled Adolescent Self-Concept, Pair Relations, and Context, an Ecological System Theories Approach. And his research interests include adolescent identity development, moderator of the depressive effect of pair victimization, and cross-cultural differences in pair relations. He is also the co-author of the Journal of Latino Latin American Studies. So welcome, Dr. Santos. How are you today? Thank you. I know that your time is valuable. You're doing a lot of good work um, at the University of Nebraska. I had the opportunity to read some of your papers that I was able to get access to. So I'm really honored to be on the podcast. Um, I know you're a subject matter expert. I'm a parent, I'm a father of three. So, you know, my life experiences, we could definitely talk and see where this conversation leads to. I like that, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I came about you, I was browsing Reddit. That's how I, that's what I do on my free time. And I saw your article was pretty popular. And when I read it, the article is titled Teaching Kids Social Responsibility, like how to settle fights and ask for help can reduce school bullying. And I didn't know that 10% of children were being bullied repeatedly. I thought that might have been a little less. But first off, what is social responsibility? And why is it important for us to teach our children it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the, the question at the heart of the issue. And really, for us, we define social responsibility as a mix of a variety of different positives that children can do and, and have a positive impact on their communities. And so this includes leadership. This includes helping others. This includes being brave and standing up, you know, to, to uh, problems. And we used a large measure to tap into what we can then call social responsibility in general. But it just speaks to kids' sense of being positive, agents in their in their community or in their classes. Now, you ask why it's important to teach it. I think, you know, for us, of course, academics matter. Of course, kids go to school to learn a lot of different things. But one aspect that we, we don't want to, to leave by the wayside is the interpersonal component. And that's part of 
one advantage of the fact that we have all these kids going to school all together is that it's a perfect opportunity to learn these social responsibility skills and learn how to interact with other people who may not necessarily always agree with you, may, you know, get in your way, but we live in a world filled with people that we don't necessarily choose who we interact with and it's to our benefit to, to do so. Positive. And I think those skills, yeah, these are intangible skills from leadership and helping people, um, you know, learning how to contribute to society is something that we need. We need it's a community effort to try to raise our children so that they could develop as a whole to become one person that's always contributing back. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's actually one of the side details about this research project that, that uh, you know, publication the International Journal of Behavioral Development is based on is that community-focused approach to try and sort of engage, you know, parents, teachers, the students, everyone in the community for a common goal that essentially to anyone, everyone's benefit. And I've been interested in cyberbullying. I've been looking into it, especially during remote learning due to the pandemic. And I wonder if social bullying or cyberbullying, excuse me, cyberbullying is more prevalent an, ex- an issue in middle and high school. Perhaps it's not, but tell me what you think. Yeah, no, happy to. And I, I mean, you're exactly right. That's really the age at which we see um, uh, just sharp increase in cyberbullying. For, I'll be honest, practical reasons, this is the age at which most kids are getting access to cell phones and access to social media, access to personal computers for them to engage in um, online classwork, but also that's when, when you see cyberbullying pick up. And I mean, what you said about this cyberbullying, especially now with all this remote learning, is probably an issue of legitimate concern to which we don't actually have any good answers yet because we're still ongoing and still trying to understand the consequences of, of the pandemic. And so in the next year or two, we'll probably have a really good idea um, wh- whether or not this has become a, a worse issue than it was in the past. And I guess, so So I'll, I'll add to that, you know, cyberbullying is particularly um, pernicious as far as we're concerned because when it comes to physical aggression, if kids is, is being victimized by their peers at school, the one thing you could say about it is that it ends at school. The same thing goes with relational aggression. If they're being picked on or, or kept out of the group, by and large, that happens and stops at the school um, playground. But cyberbullying follows kids home, and it follows them in the mediums where they ostensibly should feel the most like themselves, the safe, like on their cell phones, where they can you know be with their friends and text with their friends and FaceTime with their friends. Um, that's why we're especially concerned about cyberbullying in addition to these other forms of aggression because it, it, it's so outside of control. Of, there's not much parents and teachers can do to address it. Yeah, and you know, as, as a parent, that's really my concern is because it doesn't end at the school. It follows them. There's really no disconnect, especially with virtual learning. It's like, where do you draw the line between school or if you're a parent in work and then coming home, right? Where is that compartment? It's like everything now overlaps. So, you know, if you got a nine to five job and you work in an office and you got to check emails, well, guess what? You're at home working at home. And when do you stop checking emails, right? The same thing with, I would think with social media and cyberbullying, like 
these kids and I'm not, I'm an older person, so I'm not really into the social media like that. I only do it for upward enrichment service, but it's like, I don't see where they break off from social media at all. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, in this last year with uh, everything being so remote, it might be that social media for young people, middle school students and high school students has been a lifeline because it's been the one way that they can connect with their friends uh, when they can't necessarily see them face to face. And one one other detail that's worth sort of highlighting about cyberbullying is that when it comes to you know being physically aggressed or victimized or being um, picked on, kids probably feel safe talking to their parents about it. But when it comes to cyberbullying, the research seems to show that kids are less likely to t- want to talk to their parents about it for fear that the consequences of it is that they're going to lose their phones or they're going to lose access to the internet or social media because of what's happening to them. And as you can imagine, that wouldn't be a, a, a fair outcome, but it's a legitimate concern for some of these kids. And I don't think parents really understand cyberbullying. Like, I think, you know, if they are living or, th- you know, reflect back in their generations, like bullying is really what we knew it to be. Like it was in school, it was in the playgrounds, but, you know, some parents may know about this concept, but I don't think a lot do. And again, if you don't know about it and your child, like what you just said, is not bringing it up because they don't want to be disconnected or have their cell phones taken away, you know, it could be something that's hidden and obscure. Yeah. And so hopefully, you know, at least for parents, if you can create an environment where, you know, your kids can come talk to you about the stuff that's happening to them, positive and negative, without fear of, of, you know, those types of consequences, I think that will at least give them someone that they can talk to if they can't necessarily trust their friends who may be the perpetrators of this side of the book. Yeah, an open conversation and the relationship you have with your parents. Some parents are, you know, single parents. Uh, you may have both parents in the household. And then you got to factor too, if the parents are both working, like how much bandwidth yeah. do they have you know, when they come home and it's also with the child too, right? With this remote learning and school, it's like, what are the opportunities to even have these conversations in, you know, this society right now? I don't know. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's, you know, for us in our home, uh, dinners, at least it's one of those events where we're all together. And yeah, if there's something that's come up in someone's day, we're going to find about it. Uh, at the dinner table. Yeah, 100. And I wanted to shift to my next question. Why is saying you are sorry so hard for people? You know, I love that you asked this question. I've given it a little bit of thought. And and I think, you know, ultimately, I don't have a great answer. Uh, I'm going to just fall back on some, some general psychological principles that we know of. And my favorite of which is the way in which we explain other people's behaviors. And so when, when we're explaining the things that other people do, negative or positive, we're much more likely to blame it based on something internal to them. So if someone cuts you off in traffic, that person is a jerk. But when it comes to the kind of stuff that we do, even if it's bad things, we're more likely to blame it on external circumstances, right? If I cut someone off in traffic, I'm not a jerk. I'm just really late for this appointment. And normally I wouldn't do that kind of thing. And I think part, that's part of the reason why saying sorry is so difficult is because it disabuses you of this opportunity to say that it was an external thing that made you be, um, to, to do whatever you're apologizing for. And you have to actually 
um, reconcile the fact that this is something you did, you hurt someone else, someone that you care about, and you're apologizing so that you can uh, repair that relationship. And I think it's hard for people to rec- you know, reconcile that in themselves because we want to believe that we're all just you know, amazing people and we're not actively hurting people in our lives. But you know, it happened. I think, I think that's probably what makes it hard. Yeah, I think not hurting people, that's a great point because I know I tend to say I'm sorry maybe a little too much because I know when I'm wrong, I'm wrong, right? But yeah. I've seen coworkers and people, you know, that they do things that are questionable and it does, you know, it does offend folks. But I don't think they understand that, you know, I guess it's a sticks and stones thing, but I don't think they realize that the impacts of their words sometimes um, does have, you know, makes people feel a certain way. They thinking that they're right. And I guess they just don't do that self-reflection, I guess. Yeah, no, and I, I, wouldn't, I think that's, that's part of it. And I think, you know, guilt is, is an emotion that people, you know, uh, don't think of as positive. But the reason we feel guilty for things is to help us realize that there's been an imbalance. We've done something um, that's, that's caused a problem to someone else. And we feel guilty in a way so that we can actively want to um, address this imbalance to, to you know, make the situation whole again. And so guilt, if you don't feel guilt, then you don't necessarily feel like there's anything you have to, to fix as a result. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I'll definitely ponder that as I go through our conversation. Does income inequality impact critical conscientiousness in which a child reads social situations and do they feel like they're empowered to properly react to those conditions? Yeah, this was is a great question, and it's one that's come up quite a bit actually in response to this article because I've I've had some conversations with people on Reddit and Twitter about you know social responsibility is all fine and good, but if someone is you know physically victimizing you, you have a you know responsibility to to maybe fight back with you know physical force. And, and so why I'm a little hesitant to, to suggest this is because of something we know called hostile attributional bias, where for some kids, they interpret ambiguous situations as if something was directly negatively intent, intended towards them. So someone with hostile attributional bias might get tripped while, you know, walking down the hall in school and assume someone did it to them on purpose. And why that matters is because if you think you've been wronged, you're going to then react to that person in kind. And that might not necessarily be justified in a situation where, you know, sometimes accidents happen. Sometimes people get tripped in the hole without anyone actively trying to do it. And the reason why this ties into income inequality is that part of the problem for kids who are growing up in poor neighborhoods who are socioeconomically depressed is that their communities aren't necessarily as um, easy for for you to see the good or not assume necessarily things are happening uh, negatively on purpose. And so for kids who, who are economically disadvantaged, they might be more at risk of a hostile attribution of bias and more at risk as a result of feeling like they should respond aggressively to someone 
acting that way towards them. And that might just make things worse as opposed to better. Yeah, I think, you know, in New York, one out of four uh, children are hungry. Um, when, you know, you look at uh, the social economics, you know, it all depends on what neighborhoods they're coming from. You know, if you're walking through a neighborhood that is a high crime rate, um, you know, you don't know what's happening in that household if they're being abused. Yeah. Again, there's a lot of situations that are above my, you know, what I know, but I know, yeah, they put up, you know, a strong front. They, 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 they feel like they can't be vulnerable. And like the example you just said, like they're walking down a hallway and somebody might have inadvertently tripped them. They always feel like even though maybe they know it's an accident, but they know that if they don't react, then people might look at them as weak. I don't know if that's a fair assessment. No, I don't think that's that's uh, uh, out of the realm of possibility at all. I and mean, I think you hit you you use another example like you know hunger or stress at home. You're not going to necessarily if if you're going through these kinds of things, you're not necessarily going to have the mental and emotional resources to sit down after you've been tripped and think. Is it possible that someone did that by accident? You know, you're going to react more um, instinctively. You're going to react without necessarily thinking it through because you don't have the same sort of resources available to just take a breath and 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 think through. And yeah, I think that you said it. You said it just right. Yeah, a lot of these kids, I, I just know that you just see it in their face, like they're suffering. They're suffering in silence. They they don't know what kindness is and empathy. And I'm not talking about, I'm not using a broad stroke by any means, but you know, from what I've kind of seen that, you know, they need people, if they're not getting it in their house, they need the teachers or people in their community. If they, you know, have a, a, a priest or a pastor, or they could go to a YMCA, you know, having these mentors, I think is very important. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's exactly what this study we were trying to do because, you know, we were collecting data in over 60 schools in, uh, uh, in a city in the southern part of Brazil so that we could get a range of schools. Some of them are schools where the kids were better off, but some of them were schools where the kids were, were um, again, economically disadvantaged. And the idea is that having community support, having a shared goal and shared message between teachers and parents and members of the community is is going to be all the more special and all the more helpful for these kids. And in my conversations with teachers in middle and high schools, they tend to feel overwhelmed with their respective workload. How can we ask them to teach social responsibility in the context of their everyday responsibilities yeah hey this is this is a great a great question and really i i wanted to be absolutely clear here you know i don't think one of the take-home messages of this study is that this is one more thing that teachers should do because i think if you ask any teacher and part of what we did is over the course of the study is get information from the teachers is that they feel social responsibility is important they feel that their role as teachers is to impart that sense of caring for others, that idea of being a leader, that idea of being being brave and standing up to, to look for what you think is right, they, they, this is stuff that they already believe. And so what I think this study speaks to is that what these teachers do and what they care about actually matters. 
And it provides an opportunity for us to show them that, yeah, this kind of stuff, it's not part of your curriculum necessarily. It might not necessarily be something that you get praised for from administration, but it's something that's going to matter to these kids and it's going to help them. And so I wouldn't necessarily say teachers should be doing this on top of everything they already do. They're probably doing this already and they should know that this is, this is a good thing and it's going to have gains for these kids. They may not necessarily see it right away, but eventually it's going to have an impact. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the teachers, I think, you know, they feel sometimes that they're underappreciated and people think that, you know, it's their jobs to really babysit children, right? <laughs> it's, you know, they think the parents really kind of put that on them sometimes. And I, I just want to say that I always appreciate what teachers do because I believe they should be paid more than what they usually get. And their value is, you know, that they're, they're leading the next generation of folks. So, yeah, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. And in some respect, I mean, they have to wear so many hats and there's so mm-hmm. much that they're responsible for. I can absolutely appreciate how, um, how stressed and, and like you said it, um, how much they feel overwhelmed with their respective workloads. And so, yeah, I think this is one of those areas where it, it would just say, highlight that what they went into teaching for, part of it is helping raise kids to be responsible and caring members of their communities. And, and I think our study um, shows that they're doing that. And I think that's a great segue. You co-wrote an article titled A Dynamic Examination of the Associations Between Shyness psychological difficulties and stressful life events during early adolescence. For example, findings from multi-wave studies show that average levels of shyness typically decline for boys and girls across the elementary and early middle school years. Such studies also show significant individual differences and changes in shyness over time. If stressful life events reduce the ability for children to be less shy, then what are the consequences that these children face as they continue to grow up as teenagers and eventually adults? Right. Yeah. And so this, I, I really think there's a, there's a positive message in this question. Ultimately, what we're talking about here with these shy kids is that they want to engage with their peers. They want to make friends. They don't. They just may not necessarily feel comfortable taking that step. Or they might not necessarily know how. And so these stress, encountering stressors in their day-to-day lives, just it makes one more hurdle for them to overcome their shyness. And so while that, while that we're saying that this is a, a, an issue, especially for you know elementary and middle school students, the nice thing about this is that ultimately we never stop growing. And so whereas as teenagers and as adults, they might not necessarily come into it with all the same social skills some of their counterparts might have, they still develop, there's still an opportunity to develop those social skills over time. And so in our studies of, of teenagers, it's amazing how quickly someone can develop and overcome some of these social withdrawal um, um, obstacles when they have a nice environment with which they feel like they can sort of come out of their shell. And so what this study highlights is that Really, it's the stressful life events that are interfering with, you know, these adolescents, these children and early adolescents' ability to engage with their peers. And really, we should make schools and make their environments as stress-free as possible for them to, to 
essentially developed. Yeah, I think that particular question, like I know when I was a child growing up, I was an introvert, still kind of introverted and extremely shy. So, you know, social interactions, you had had some friends and whatnot. But yeah, once you start to go into high school, uh, eventually college, you know, you start to grow as a person. And, you know, even that I'm 40 years old and I'm still learning and growing every day, always keeping an open mind. Yeah. So, you know, being shy uh, and, you know, I guess when you go to college, like you're forced out of it because you got to do presentations in front of the classroom and, you know, you, you got to work in teams on group projects, which I always hated, but I understood the value of the group projects because that's, you know, when you work in real life, as you know, as a professor, you know, you're going to have to deal with many different people that have different ideologies and work ethics. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And it's funny because we have, we were having this conversation with my uh, eight, almost 18 year old daughter uh, just this morning because she was, she was talking about something that she's not necessarily comfortable with. I mean, we're talking about how, yeah, but you know, part of growing up is going outside of your comfort zone and then realizing afterwards, oh, I could do that. And maybe there's more that I can do that I don't necessarily realize because it's outside of my comfort zone. Yeah, I think character, I think adversity, you know, helps shape your character. Just a quick story, you know, with the virtual learning and my son, I have a 13-year-old son he was in middle school the year prior he was on honors but then when they shifted to middle school uh shifted to eighth grade and the virtual learning he was really struggling with it and it came to a point where his grades he wasn't going to the classes and i didn't know about it and when the counselor sat down uh with us uh you know it was kind of like wow you know because if you're home and you're you're not, you know, in the building, you know, who's to enforce that they're on this computer every day. Classes are boring. Oh. Right. So um, long story short, you know, he made a transition where he was grinding it out seven days a week for five weeks to make up work, um, to continue with his current workload. And, you know, eventually I attended his graduation yesterday and I was very proud to know that he faced the challenge. He didn't take it on personally. And as a proud father, it just, you know, in a weird way, I'm kind of glad it happened because I, I saw how tough he was. And, mm. and I guess I just wanted to share that because I was just thinking back about yesterday's graduation. No, I think that's, that's fantastic. And I think, you know, the, the word you use transition is exactly that. I mean, longitudinal research that looks at, you know, elementary school students adjustment to middle school and then adjustment to high school shows that those transitions are really rough. And I can only imagine navigating that kind of transition while going through a pandemic and dealing with remote learning is a double double whammy. And so that's a, that's really encouraging that, that he was able to, to turn around like that and really work work on work and catch up the way he did. Yeah, it wasn't a blame game. Uh, I took some culpability in that. He took he understood that he was wrong and it was working together because I have the luxury of working home right now because where I work at hasn't opened up. It's going to open up in August. So I was able to work with him and it kind of made our bond stronger. So, um, yeah, that's that. I, I, again, I was just I don't know why I'm thinking about it. I guess it's because his graduation is still on my mind. Uh, you're listening to the Trivium Dad Podcast. My name is Nicholas Jones, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Santos. 
professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nebraska. I guess our next question. Yeah, thank you. I feel that when you watch TV, YouTube, or browse social media, that being loud, cursing, and acting a fool is being promoted in our society as a normal way to act privately or in public. How do we teach children that being respectful, listening, and understanding to keep an open mind is for their benefit? Yeah, uh, and trust me, this is very relevant. I have a 15-year-old who is uh, very fond of um, urban exploration. And so we, we sometimes talk about these very issues at home. And so I don't, I don't really have a good answer from, from the research literature, but anecdotally, you know, I think probably what goes a long way is, is reinforcing a, a consistent message. So, you know, when, when kids see um, things online, it's, it's nice for them to be able to talk to their parents and for parents to say, yeah, that's funny, but that's not necessarily you know, a very nice thing to do or not a very, um, uh, you know, I'm trying to use a specific example, you know, it's, it's, it's not what were the values that we're, we're trying to espouse. And so, and I think probably more often than not, if children and adolescents are getting at least the same messages from the other adults, the teachers, you know, family members and members in the community, that's probably going to have a stronger impact than not necessarily what they're seeing, you know, on TV, on YouTube. And, and at the end of the day, you know, thankfully, when this is not a problem we see with, you know, 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds as much, I think it's the kind of thing that it, because children and adolescents are susceptible at this period of the lifetime to these types of messaging, that parents have to, um, you know, highlight that being respectful being considerate and being understanding is is the, what what we wanted what we want to encourage absolutely now this we didn't do this as part of our study but other researchers have and the nice thing about these extracurricular um, programs at school enrichment activities is that they they're more often than not uh, uh, activities that kids can engage in that is not schoolwork, which, as you can imagine, kids aren't as excited about schoolwork, but they are excited about sports. They are excited about their hobbies. And so this gives, you know, these kids an opportunity to engage in something that they're excited about within the adult sphere. You know, it's still happening at school. They're still being supervised. They're still being safe. They're still doing things that, you know, the adults around them care about. But at the same time, this gives them a chance to succeed in things, or if not necessarily succeed right away, encounter obstacles and learn what to do to overcome those obstacles. And that's part of that social responsibility um, mindset as well, is that developing agents, getting a feeling that you are an active participant in your community doesn't happen magically. It happens through everyday every day-to-day interactions with the people around us. And those extracurricular activities and schools and one other context for this to happen. So I couldn't agree more. And I think going back to what you earlier said about leadership, helping others and standing up to problems, also having these uh, role models that they're listening to. Because I have a friend that was teaching my children karate. But when I was there as a parent, it was more so not the sidekick and the roundhouse kick, but it was his message after each class 
in which they sat around in a circle. So, and also in talking with him too, I remember hearing that, you know, a parent could say the same exact thing that he would say, but because he said it, it's for some reason it resonates better. So I found that to be hilarious, but it was so, it was definitely truth. Yeah. And it's nice to hear from someone other than your parent. Yeah. Because it seems like, you know, I, I knew that too, when I was a kid that, you know, when you, when you see somebody and another adult and you, you, you know, you're watching them, you're seeing how they, they move and operate. And when they say something, it just resonates. It just does something different. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, cause with my kids, you know, I think it's just, you, you when you hear the same thing from your parents over and over again, it's easy to tune, tune them out, but really it's much more powerful when people in the community are saying the exact same thing again. And now you're realizing, okay, yeah, it's all, it all makes sense. It all connects. Yeah. And they come with their own life experiences too. So they have their own stories and, uh, you know, each action has its own consequences. So they're able to, you know, relay their message based on their life experience. Yeah. Agree more. Yeah. Uh, you know, so for me, I, I study peer relations. I, I study how children and adolescents interact with, with the peers that they spend sometimes, you know, eight to 10 hours a day with. And, that's not going to change anytime soon. We're not going to be restructuring schools such such that that ideally these interactions matter. You know, kids, teenagers, and and uh, children care about their friends. They want their friends to like them. And our research shows that by being helpful, by being considerate, by being a good leader, not only does this mean less victimization and aggression for the individual, but this translates to the classroom as a whole. And so everyone benefits from these positive um, um, social, these indices of social responsibility. And it's the kind of thing that it's, it's not even, a, a, it becomes a virtuous circle. More people acting pro-socially, pro, pro more people being helpful to each other ends up reverberating and helping others beyond just ourselves. And I think that's probably the take-home message here is that even though at the end of the day, we want the best outcome for us by doing these things, not only is it better for us, but it's better for everyone. Thank you very much uh, for your research. I've learned a lot in reading your papers and thank you for your contributions to society as a whole, because I think, you know, as a parent, you know, I was learning a lot from reading your work and I know you're going to continue on because I could tell you have a passion and a desire to continue to produce um research right so thank you very much i think for the audience that's listening definitely check out the links in this podcast so that it could refer you to um websites that are affiliated with dr santos thank you once again professor well thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you today i really um yeah really enjoyed it follow us on social media u-e-s-n-y-s Check out the website, uesnys.com. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Thank you for listening.